0: You are listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of ICMforum.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Chris, and we have got an epic episode for you. It's time for an annual look at the best films of the year that was. 2022. An episode we could have recorded months ago as our lists have been surprisingly static, but we just had to go through our extensive watch list and just watch as much as possible to form a good basis. Sadly, this marks the first time Mathieu cannot be here with us, but our regular top 10 presenter Saul and Tom are here as usual as we dive into our very favorite films of 2022. We'll use the same format as usual, starting with our runner-ups going from number 10 to 6, with the meat of the discussion opening up as we get into our top fives, with more and more time dedicated to each film as we climb up towards our individual choices for a number one film of 2022. It's a bit strange uh, without Mature starting, but Tom,
1: why don't you kick us off and just tell us what does the bottom of your top 10 look like? Thanks, Chris. Excited to be discussing 2022 films today. So I have seen a total of 123 films from the year, according to IMDb. And my numbers 10 to 6 look like this. So at number 10, I've got Joyland and this is a wonderful film from Pakistan about an unemployed man who finds work at a burlesque house and becomes infatuated with a trans woman, tackles a number of heavy social issues and combines this with powerful storytelling to offer a unique and unforgettable experience. At number 9 I've got Alex Garland's Men, another bold and brilliant offering from the director. This is a grim psychological thriller about a woman recovering from the suicide of her partner that is perhaps at its best when it dips its toes into grotesque body horror. At number eight, I have Athena, a stunning action film about a violent clash between police and gang members that takes place in a housing complex which becomes surrounded by riot police. Some of the cinematography in this is truly breathtaking, and I know Chris would agree with me on that. At number seven, I have the Batman, and Matt Reeves proves the still life in the Batman with his suitably gothic and grungy tale of crime in Gotham City. All thoughts of Christian Bale are thrown out the window, with Robert Patterson being a worthy successor as the next caped Crusader. And at number six, I have Fresh. An inventive and unpredictable horror about a young woman who takes a punt on a weekend getaway with a man she barely knows. Stacked with black humour and full of gore and depravity, this is a pretty sick and twisted horror that I had a lot of fun with and it narrowly missed out in making my top five. Great to hear that at least have some strong overlap there, Tom. Uh, what about you, Saul? What's
0: uh, your 10th the 6th favourite film of the year that was?
2: I'd first like to start off by saying what an amazing year 2022 was for film for me. I actually already have 7 films from 2022 in my all-time top 1000, including 2 of them in my top 500. By comparison, I only have 3 films from 2021 in the bottom half of my top 1000. Also, according to IMDb, 2022 as a year has my 18th highest average rating. And I think this is doubly impressive because I've actually seen 133 films, so more than Tom, from 2022 to date. And, yet it's still got such a high average rating. So, yeah, I think it's just been an incredible year for film. Because it's been such an incredible year, it's been really hard to whittle down these 133 films down to not only a top five but also five runners up i've therefore decided to talk briefly about the five that i like the most that we won't be discussing in depth in this episode that means that in intense spot i have bodies 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 which was marketed as a horror movie but is actually closer in spirit to an agatha christie style whodunit as a wink murder style party game turns deadly as a Janet Z satire, it's also very funny with the group meaninglessly throwing around buzzwords, becoming themselves allies at all the wrong times and calling each other ableist. And as a mood piece, there are tons of shots gloriously illuminated in screens and glow sticks when the power goes out. My ninth spot goes to Incredible But True, yet another wacky comedy from Quanton Dupierre, the guy behind Deer Skinner rubber and keep an eye out. It is a great venture into the absurd and fantastical focusing on a middle aged man who just wishes to age gracefully while his wife's insist on overusing a portal in their home that allows her to age backwards. He also has a boss who is obsessed with his newly installed electronic penis that helps him perform well in bed but constantly malfunctions. For spot number eight I have glass onion. The follow up to Knives Out. I took the opportunity to see it in theatres before its Netflix release, which I think really added to the experience because it looks so lavish. And like the original, the murder mystery at hand really benefits from the way Johnson plays around with chronology, drooping us information in small chunks and replaying events before the solution to everything becomes clear. In seventh spot I have Barbarian. A a film about a woman who discovers a strange man residing at an Airbnb property and becomes suspicious of his claim of inadvertent double booking. This is one of those films that winds up going in a completely different direction than what it seems to be going in at first, and while the second half is nowhere near as intense as unsettling as the is-he-or-isn't-he psychological thriller first half, it all essentially works as we are ultimately left to question for ourselves who the real Bavarian is. Which brings me to sixth spot, which is The Whale, a film that I would have loved to discuss in depth in this podcast, but alas we're limited to just five spots for that. Adapted from a stage play, The Whale is almost entirely set in one living room, but all the resulting claustrophobia from this feels thematically on point for a film about a confined man. The most striking element, of course, is Brendan Fraser's performance, So eloquent and well-spoken, he rarely seems undignified despite his less-than-healthy physical appearance. And what about you, Chris? What were your five runners-up for this year? Well, first of
0: all, I just have to really agree with you that 2022 was an absolutely excellent year and that any of my runner-ups could easily have made my top five under more normal circumstances. Starting off my list, number 10 is The Wonderful Family Portrait Alcaraz by emerging director Carla Simon whose debut summer 1993 was my favorite film of 2017. This film lacks the same kind of truly visual journey into the mind of our protagonist as it It's a much larger web of the entire family, but the cinematic style and power shows a clear connection between the two. And uh, Simone really is just one of the big directorial uh, talents I have my eye on, and I just can't wait to see what she does in the future. My number nine is the court drama, Saint Omer, which manages to draw us into the unnerving story of a woman who murdered her own child without using flashbacks. It's a fantastic feature debut by Alice Diop. My eighth favorite film of the year is the Norwegian minimalist drama comedy, A Human Position by Anders Emblem, which captures and uses all of better than any filmmaker has used any Norwegian city before, at least in my mind. The sense of space is incredible, as is the shot composition. My seventh favorite film of the year is the all-absorbing Athena by... Roman Gavras, one of the greatest action films of recent years, comprised of a series of long takes as we follow all sides. Police, rioters, criminals and peacekeepers as a large-scale protest erupts into a riot following the police killing of a Muslim child in Paris. And finally, my number six is Triangle of Sadness by Ruben Östlund, which we'll luckily talk about a bit later. I'm really happy we get to talk about this one, as I was so sad that I could not fit it into my own list. And that actually brings us into our top fives.
1: Tom, what is your elusive number five? So I've been a huge fan of the films of T. West since The House of the Devil. In particular, I love The Innkeepers. There's an interesting story about that, in that I actually stayed at the hotel where the innkeepers was shot a few years before the film was even released. so when I saw that on the big screen and realized I'd been in those very rooms that are shown on the on the big screen, that was just something else it was an incredible experience, but anyway, enough of that, I need to focus on the film that is my number five so I enjoyed X last year or the year before, but he really ramped things up a notch with his latest work, Pearl. It's a superb origin story that spends time developing an utterly fascinating character, which makes the horror elements resonate even more when they land. Mia Goth stars, and she's nothing short of astonishing here, with the final long take being a breathtaking display of her acting prowess and all that comes before it showcasing a sublime performance that enables you to root for such a charismatic yet very twisted villain. Whereas X pays homage to the sleazy exploitation flicks of the 70s, West's stylistic approach to Pearl is based upon the golden age of Hollywood, along with playful nods to The Wizard of Oz, Mary Poppins, and many musicals of the era which bring a bizarre vibrancy to the proceedings, both through vivid colour choices and also the nostalgic charm of such pictures. The captivating story focuses on Pearl's unusual upbringing on a seemingly innocuous Texas farmstead in 1918, where she dreams of becoming a film star. These dreams lead to violence as Pearl's repressed desires take hold, and the ensuing carnage is a joy to behold, even if West employs his usual slow-burn tactics to leave the audience anxiously waiting for the fix of horror, and bloodshed. And with a third picture currently in production, I cannot wait to see the final installment of this stylish and intelligent horror series that continues to break the mould. I think it could be hard for West to top Pearl, but I've got no doubt that the final film of the trilogy will deliver another wild ride. I have to admit that I liked X a little bit better than I liked Pearl.
0: With X, I just... Really enjoyed the 70s aesthetics, and I thought it was the kind of really pulpy style that Pi West has uh, used before. Pearl is, I, I suppose, more daring because it takes him into a little bit more unusual territory, and uh, I agree with you. I, I really enjoyed how he plays with the sort of asked, the bright cinematography, which is Really, if ever, used in horror films, and it worked very well. It's a lot of memorable scenes, the make session with the Scarecrow in particular, stands out. But my main issue with it is that I just wish it had played up the comedy a bit more. Uh, the accentuated 30s aesthetics can only go so far without diving into comedy or more surreal touches. So I was actually left feeling that it was a bit more quaint and stuck halfway between a solid horror film and a satire or a homage. I just don't think that part worked as well as with X, which really just kind of built on the aesthetics of the 70s and delivered that punch to the contemporary edge. Though Mia yeah, Goth is just absolutely unnerving and she carries... The film with her smile and facial expression. So just uh, kudos to her. Just ducks.
2: Good work. Pearl is a film that, as I've discussed in other podcasts, I had to wait an incredibly long time to see. For whatever reason, A24 refused to release it in Australia in 2022. So most countries around the world got to see Pearl within a couple of months after X which is the same time that was released in the United States. For whatever reason, they held off on it, and it wasn't actually released in cinemas until March 2023. So by the time Pearl came out here, my expectations were through the roof. It had already topped the letterbox list of top horror films from 2022, which I thought was amazing considering it hadn't been released in half the world in 2022. But yet it already topped that list and it got to the point where it's actually been almost a year since I'd seen X. So I actually re-watched X before watching Pearl. And the interesting thing is that, quite contrary to Chris, I didn't like X as much. I mean, I think part of what I liked about X a lot the first time around was the whole mystery behind it. And we don't know any of the characters could be the killer. We don't know who it is. And that was a really cool and really fun thing. I mean, yes, the 70s vibe was great, but the mystery was, I guess, a lot of what I liked about the first time round, and that wasn't the same the second time round. By comparison, it was a film where we sort of know more about what's going on before we enter into it. Therefore, I would appreciate it a bit more. I did absolutely love it, and I do think it does deserve its reputation as being the superior of the two films. It is very much a psychological film rather than just like a straightforward horror film. Yeah, what you guys have said about Mia Goss' performance, she's heartfelt every step of the way as her actions become more and more unhinged, as you can see how unhappy she is, confined to this farm town life and feeling that she needs to get out of it there. The Vibrant Colors, like you have said, guys, is great, although it is interesting that you keep mentioning or Tom mentioned being the sort of cinematography of the time whereas The Wizard of Oz came out in the late 30s and the film's set in about 1918. But definitely very striking colours, which I think just adds to it. You don't really see a lot of horror films that are sort of like set in the daytime or to have such vibrant colours. And what really makes the film interesting for me is like X, it's a film that's obsessed with movies. So X is all about the adult film world and creating a porno movie, whereas in... Pearl, it's also about the love of films and films first coming out. Films in those days, the silent early films, they're still going for some daring things in there. I think you guys have done enough to sing it's virtues. All I can do is just, yeah, carry along with that and say that it is also one of my favourite films of 2022. It's
1: quite rare that we all agree on a horror film, so I'm happy that you guys enjoyed it. Not necessarily as much as I did, but you at least appreciated the aesthetics and and what it was trying to do, and I think it is rare to see a horror film tackle something like that, especially invoking the films of the 30s, and it's just refreshing to see characters taking a punt on new approaches and bringing something new to the genre, which really makes Pearl stand out, so I hope... Every horror fan listening will check it out, but also those who aren't necessarily interested in horror may find it a lot to love here, particularly because it is a film about movie making in part as well, and just a love for cinema in in general.
0: And what about you, Saul?
1: What is your
2: fifth favorite film of the year? In fifth spot, I have a film that was actually recommended to me by Tom. I had seen it pop up a bit in my letterbox feed but I was somewhat sceptical of it based on the very odd poster and the fact that the film was set in Iran and filmed in Farsi but made overseas, which had me querying why would that be the case. As it turns out, I absolutely loved it, and the film in question is, of course, Holy Spider. The film involves an ambitious female journalist who poses as a prostitute as she attempts to locate a serial killer who believes that he is committing a holy jihad on decadence. The film gives equal attention to both the journalist and the serial killer before they cross paths, something which makes the eventual crossing of paths amazingly intense. And the second half of the film becomes incredibly interesting as we start to see reactions from those who believe he was doing the right thing to cleanse the streets. And excellent as the lead actress is in the leading role. The film, for me, actually grows more dynamic towards the end as she loses control of her own story and amid law enforcement figures sympathising with the killer's motives. I cannot recommend the film further, and thank you so much, Tom, for recommending it. What did you guys think of Holy Spider?
1: So Holy Spider narrowly missed out my top 10. I agree with most of what Sol says. It's it's a brilliant film and it's great to see a a powerful female character. It's not the type of film that we're necessarily used to seeing from Iran. What it shows on screen, the violence and the brutality is, is quite intense. And I just want to add as well that it is based on a real life case of a man who murdered 16 women that's something that really cuts to the core isn't it It, it's very grim and brutal but it's also powerful
2: and uh, highly recommended good to hear tom something which i just thought i'd mention although i'm having an argument in the chat with chris about it at the moment is that it's actually not a film from iran per se it's actually a danish production but then chris is saying well yes it's an exile film because they couldn't actually make it within Iran, so they got Danish funding for it instead. So I guess it depends how you interpret it. But since I just had the conversation with you in the chat, Chris, what were your thoughts on Holy Spider?
0: I really liked Holy Spider as well, and I agree on a lot of what you say. I mean, seeing a film of this kind set in Iran, but not made in Iran, and made with different funding, so allow them to do things we're just not used to seeing. In Iranian cinema, you see women without their headscarves, and they're able to explore really harsh violence towards women in a kind of way that you just would not be able to see. It's really daring. Holy Spider is part of a set of films, really, that has been recently made by Iranians in Farsi, but not shot in Iran, because... Freedom of filmmakers in Iran is, shall we say, very, very poor. What stopped it from being a favorite for me is that while it's based on a true story, it does some tweaks to make the journalist more heroic and involved than uh, she was in the real case. Because I actually had to look it up after I watched it because it just felt so over the top and slightly unbelievable. Um uh, that portion of the film the strained incredulity, a little too far. I'm not going to spoil that part of the film, but it, it felt too scripted, that part, it felt too perfect how she got involved. However, uh, much happens after that too, and like you mentioned, Saul, a lot of the strength of the film comes from what happens later when the Iranian society responds and the country sides with the serial killer that's just mind-boggling reaction, Uh, and its effect sink in. I I, I thought that was such a powerful statement and powerful experience.
2: Thanks for that, Chris. I actually didn't read up about the real-life story myself. I knew that it was based on a real story. I didn't know how much was fiction and how much was actually based on real events. So that's interesting to hear. I don't know if that would have changed my perception of it, but I do agree that some of the stuff she does in there does seem a little bit overly heroic. But the way that it loses control of her story, I thought that was very interesting in the second half. And yeah, definitely a very chilling ending. And it ends also with a home video towards the end, which I'm not going to spoil it about. But yeah, very chilling way to end a film. And definitely a movie which made a very large impression on me. What about you, Chris? What was your fifth favourite film of 2022?
0: Well, my fifth favorite film of uh, the year is, uh, uh, I believe, the only film on my list that you liked. (laughs) So so it's good to start with something positive, at least. Is the Norwegian comedy Sick of Myself by Kristoffer Borgli, which is a really uncomfortable portrait of a woman who can't stand to be placed on the sidelines. She can't stand having people ignore her, talk over her, or just not see her, and she tries in increasingly unhealthy and disturbing ways to get the spotlight. The film walks a tightrope between reality and her own imagination, in a film that is really a perfect example of deadpan Norwegian comedy, which uh, fans of, for instance, last year's Ninja Baby may appreciate, though it also shares quite a lot of similarity with uh, some other big recent Norwegian films, in particular uh, one of my favorite uh, films mentioned in our 2021 podcast, Grit, and of course, The Worst Person in the World. This is once again a tale of a 2030-something wavered woman in a place of career uncertainty, uh, and just attempting to, in flawed ways, get what she wants. Though so the film is honestly even more cringeworthy than Grit. And I say cringeworthy in the best possible way. There were so many times I could hardly watch the screen, it just hurt. It's not a graphic film, even though it has a bit of a bloody opener. It's more the establishment of a character who will try to rewrite herself in every way she can, invent things just to get people to notice her, spin and build on the same story, and take things further and further until she just goes off the deep end. It's hilarious for people who get the humor and get the Norwegian deadpan, but it certainly also leans into cultural commentary about attention currency in modern society, and it just remains relentless from beginning to end.
2: Yeah, you are sort of right, Chris, that Sick of Myself was the only film in your list that I really liked. There are a couple of others which we'll get to, which I thought were above average. I thought they were decent films. (laughs) And there were a couple that I thought were, well, let's say a little bit more ordinary but, yeah, Sick of Myself was in my top 20 of the year, so it is a film that I thought was fantastic. What I guess I most liked about it is the way she gets attention for herself is by taking these – I don't think it's a plot spoiler because that was quite early in the film. Yeah, go ahead. She takes these Russian drugs that she hears have these terrible side effects, and then she pretends to have this mysterious and curable disease – And the whole thing gave me a feel of antiviral, that film from Brandon Cronenberg that came out about a decade ago. But here it actually sort of made more sense about why she's infecting herself. So she's doing it, getting infecting herself. She's trying to be this poster child for an unknown disease just in order to get attention for herself. And I thought that was a great way of portraying the millennium culture that you've got some people out there are so obsessed with getting their name out there. They'll actually do terrible things to their health just to get themselves out there. And the way she lies about it and everything, like you mentioned over there, a good companion piece would be the worst person in the world. But for me, this is a film which is 10 times better than the worst person in the world. You've actually got a character in there who actually might be the worst person in the world, (laughs) whereas the character in the film that's called that doesn't even come close to that. Thor is a great film. The other thing I'd just also mention there. Is there's a whole series of points in the film where we see things and it's not clear at first, but they're actually just imagining them. So there are things that she's imagining happening in her head, but there's actually not really happening. Sick of Myself also plays around with fantasy and reality, and I absolutely love films that do that. So yeah, I thought it was a great film. I think Ninja Baby is another good Norwegian film. I think it's a great one to mention in the same sentence. But yeah, Sick of Myself, I think, is a superior film. And for me, it is definitely one of the best Norwegian films of the decade. Really happy to hear that, Sol.
1: Sick of Myself sounded like a film that I was really going to enjoy. And while I did find it relatively engaging, I thought it was okay. It it didn't leave the same impression that it left upon Chris and Sol. Chris put it nicely where he said it it walks a a tightrope between fantasy and, and reality. And I quite like ambiguity in a film, though I felt like Sick of Myself started stretching this notion to the limit with how many times the character would shift in and out of reality and and fantasy, and I found it started to get a little repetitive. I still enjoyed quite a few of the awkward scenes. There's an excellent dinner table scenario that I really enjoyed, just the notion of this woman wanting all the attention on her. And I also feel like it would kind of make a good partnership with a film we're going to discuss a little bit later on, because it basically looks at terrible people and just how they behave appallingly in in certain situations. I would say that Sick of Myself is slightly less enjoyable than The other film which explores that notion that we're going to discuss a little bit later on. So, yeah, not a bad film as such, but not one that really blew me away. It wouldn't be near my top 20 of the year.
0: Yeah, that's, that's all right, Tom. <laughs> At least you enjoyed it, which is more than I can say, all but for my four remaining films. But to continue on to you, Tom,
1: what is your fourth favourite film of the year? So my fourth favourite film of the year is Asbestos or the beasts and this is an absolute juggernaut of a film with a gripping slow motion opening sequence of two farmhands wrestling a horse to the ground which sets the scene for a momentous struggle between a french couple who moved to a remote galician farming village and their new neighbors who look down on outsiders denis menachet stars as the hulking frenchman determined to make a go of life in the countryside, and his peaceful nature is tested to its limits by his antagonists, two scheming brothers who will stop at nothing to see his ambitious plans fail. The setting and the themes feel similar to two of my favourite French films, the classics, Jean de Fleurette and Manon de Source, though this is an altogether more darker and twisted affair, with the brooding atmosphere feeling closer to something like Bullhead or perhaps Prisoners. The captivating story is well-paced, taking its time to establish character motivations and delivering some excellent foreshadowing with a number of intense encounters between the families that threaten to burst into violence. The Beasts is one of those films that uses quality from the outset and hooks you in with a combination of astonishing acting and intelligent storytelling that perfectly balances being a menacing thriller whilst also offering food for thought with its sharp social commentary. The cinematic craft on display throughout is superb, and this is a film that I can see myself returning to again and again over the years. And I would urge anyone who hasn't heard of this masterful work to check it out as soon as you can. Don't think you'll be disappointed, but let's hear what Chris and Saul have to say on that.
2: It's funny you should mention that, Tom, because I actually was very disappointed by The Beast and it is definitely my least favourite of the films in your top five for the year. There's a few things that I might get to, but something I'd like to do is quote a letterbox review that's not written by me and I'm not usually in the habit of quoting letterbox reviews because some of them aren't that well written. But this one, even though it's not that well-written, just really captures a lot about what I sort of felt towards it. So this review is by someone called Eliana, and Eliana has written, it made me wonder what type of script I'd have to write for my films to get picked up, if this was the kind of films that are being financed, like what was the hypnosis like? Um, so get this right. Big French guy really wants to stay in the Spanish little small town. The townsfolk be like, "Ew, no, you French, because Spaniards are evil. <laughs> and then the Spanish governor was like, Okay, ah, sorry. This was so not worth the two and a half hour run time for the extremely unsatisfying ending. Okay, so some of that review has got spoilers in it. Part of that was edited out. To just get my basic own feelings on it. I think for me the biggest problem was it was probably maybe the slow pacing because it is an incredibly long film and because it's so drawn out, the tension never really built up for me. I didn't like the way the locals are presented as simplistic rednecks while the main couple are presented as simple virtuous do-gooders who want to do nothing more than farm their crops in peace. So I thought that was just way too black and white to be interesting. I did think the climax was pretty great and was sort of unsure of how far it's going to go. But probably the big thing also about the film is there's actually half an hour of aftermath after the climax. And the whole of that section for me felt anticlimactic. While the film was inspired by true events, I couldn't really get my head around what the film was trying to say beyond the idea that xenophobia sucks. I'm sorry, Tom, I am in that small group of people. And it is quite small because it actually is, uh, on my letterbox stats, I can see which films I've rated the lowest compared to average, and this is one of those films where my rating for it is, like, massively below the average. But, yeah, I just could not really get my head around the acclaim for the
1: film. I just think it's funny that you say that it's an incredibly long film. It's actually 10 minutes shorter than your next film. (laughs) I can appreciate where you're, you're coming from with that, Solar. I mean, th- for me, I was engaged from the very start, so I did feel that like there was a build-up of tension. I was invested, and I didn't mind that one of the uh, key events happens maybe two-thirds in, and then you're following the aftermath. I thought that was also quite similar to how Holy Spider panned out, how you get to see the aftermath. And when you're really invested in a story, Sometimes it's nice to see what can happen after the, the key events happen. But a bit disappointed that it didn't work out for you. I'm glad at least that you seem to have potentially positive reactions to the rest of my films on the list. So hopefully, Chris, you enjoyed it a bit more than Sol, I think. Yes,
0: we changed places here. Sol likes all of your lists except one. He dislikes all of my lists except one. <laughs> so that's, that's a good dynamic. But yeah, no, I I loved The Beast. was very close to making my own uh, top ten, and I disagree with Saul. I think the change in perspective, what he calls the aftermath after the key event, that was just as interesting, if not more, than what preceded it. I think it's a film in two halves. I think both halves comes at it with completely different energy. It's a really unnerving film. It honestly felt like a horror film. I was expecting something to happen at any point, even though the pace is slow. You just think that at any point someone could die, someone could get attacked, something could happen. I was just sitting there with my anxiety rising and rising and rising. Then, you mentioned there's a key event and film changes pace, still unnerving, but it becomes a different kind of film. I also disagree with somebody He says that the lead characters were seen as virtuous. I don't think they were positively portrayed, especially the French husband. I think he came across as full of himself person. I don't even think they were presented to good either. He's selling himself as trying to do something good for the community, but I'm not even sure if that's the case. I think the portrayal of, the, uh, of them is more nuanced. I don't think all of the Spanish people were portrayed as terrible either. The antagonists are two of them in particular. It's a really gripping thriller, and anyone who enjoys slow brooding thrillers should definitely uh, seek out this one. But to move on to a film where Saul and I will actually agree, uh, <laughs> why don't you present my number six Sol?
2: Okay, so to move on to a more positive note, and look, I probably should also say that the way that you and Tom have described the beast does make it sound like a much better film than my experience of it, so maybe I will re-watch it down the track. I just know that I went in with high expectations that weren't met. But to get on to my number four of the year, it's a film that I was pretty confident that I was going to like even before sitting down to watch him. In fact, even before it won the Palm Dura Khan, I was pretty sure it was going to be my sort of awkward comedy. The film is, of course, Ruben Osterlin's Triangle of Sadness. The film involves a male model who grows wary of his relationship with his social media influencer girlfriend aboard a cruise ship which is destined for disaster. Harris Dickinson is perfect in the lead role, and while I'm not a big fan of vomit gags, most of the comedy is actually subtle and hilarious, from a noisy windscreen wiper that keeps interrupting him and his girlfriend during an argument to an elevator door that keeps repeatedly closing on Dickinson and, to the way that he's sort of pushed out of his seat when lining up for a photo shoot, to the irony of him complaining about a shirtless crew member while he is shirtless himself. It is a three-act film, and yes, like Tom mentioned, it is incredibly long. And the incident that ties the second and the third act together I do think is quite weak. I haven't actually been able to process that myself, which is probably why it's not a bit higher up in my list, but... Even though the third act is predictable, and that's sort of what a lot of the criticisms that relate against the film said, the third act for me is also very much Ruben Ostlin in his element, providing yet another fascinating portrait of blame and responsibility. So what did you guys think of Triangle of Sadness?
0: You already know Triangle of Sadness is one of my favorite films of the year and I I was shocked when I found better films that just slowly fell down my top five and and just outside of it, I was really looking forward to presenting it for this episode. Just like Sick of Myself, it displays that uh, uneasy, almost cringe-worthy, deadpan, uh, Scandinavian uh, humor where you feel uneasy throughout. And uh, that's something Usland does incredibly well. It showcases some of the best work he does, because what he's so amazing at is getting us into social situations with big current teams. And without really being subtle about it, he just renders us in uncomfortable situations where we are forced to confront it for a prolonged period of time as characters clash end up pushed to the wall, we feel they're at ease, and we just stay there watching on for such a long time. That's just something he does brilliantly well. The reason why it started slipping down for me is that, just like you, saw, I did feel like the steam started uh, <laughs> falling out a little bit as the acts proceeded. I think that each act was weaker than the one before. So the first act is one of the best I've seen all year they have two characters they're locked in a conversation and argument and you just see so much pain and easiness (laughs) the teams they're touching on are so huge in 2022 and it just leaves us with them and it's embarrassing and it's intense and it just never lets up then you get the actual cruise element of the film which is still brilliant and it's what most people think about when they think about the film it's the longest It really brings in, you know, the class differences, etc. And then you have the third act, which I won't spoil too much, but it reverses some of the hierarchies, which could have been really interesting, but it feels a little bit flatter. And that's just where a lot of the air came out of the balloon and the reason why it did not end up being in my top five. But yeah, it's an absolutely brilliant film. Each of the acts are strong on their
1: own. We've got a film that we all agree on here. and. This was the one I was referring to when I was discussing sick of myself, basically talking about terrible people making fools of themselves because the main characters in Triangle of Sadness, you'd love to hate them. They are arseholes, but it's such a pleasure to watch them scheming and manipulating each other and those around them. And it's a brilliant satire on the extravagance of the wealthy. And I was chuckling to myself at Sol's description of some of the gags, particularly the shirtless man complaining about a shirtless crew member. The humour is great here. And one thing that really worked for me, quite a personal thing, but partway through, there's a brilliant song choice where they play a song called New Noise by a band called Refused. Now, I've seen this band live a few times, and the song used to always be on in the club nights when I was out back in my university days. And I had no idea that was on the soundtrack. And sometimes when you hear a song that you absolutely love coming out of nowhere in a film, it really connects with you. And it was so good to see. I had a lot of fun with Triangle of Sadness. Even though it was quite long, that wasn't a problem. I was hooked throughout. And yeah, one that I recommend a lot. This is
2: a really good pick by Saul and Chris as well. Yeah, really nice to hear the positive reactions from both of you because, yeah, it's a film that can be a bit divisive. I mean, comedies are always divisive, but definitely a lot of things that the film did well. I like Tom's description of it being about terrible characters uh, making fools of themselves because that is partially what it's about. Do do like the third act, especially all the squabbling over breadsticks or was it pretzel sticks? I mean, that's classic Ruben Osterlin stuff they're not going to take responsibility for, uh, yeah, it's a great film. And Anybody who hasn't seen it, I will definitely recommend going out and seeing it. What about you, Chris? What was your number four of the year?
0: So my uh, number four of the year was Zimini by Ulrich uh, Seidel. I'm embarrassed. I've actually never seen a Seidel film before. I really just need to sit down and watch more of his films. The sequel, of is not as great, but this Still just a really uneasy experience. Though they're also a bit of a yin and yang in tone. What's special about Rimini to me is the way it captures a desperate energy from the lead. Almost comparable to Mickey Rourke in The Wrestler. But here we are faced with an aging, drunken pop star with just no chance of a comeback. All he has left Are a few aging groupies who he plays to in winter. It's this wonderful summer vacation town, now almost desolate, trash everywhere. Uh, And he's just standing there singing his heart out with no accompaniment. He just pushes, uh, you know, the CD player and it, it plays the backup music. These almost empty halls of fans. It's really. Quite sad. The scenery is used incredibly well. It's trashy. It's cold, often neon clad, and you just feel this abandoned, dirty town in its essence. And our lead is equally seedy. He's sagging, doing everything he can to make ends meet, including renting out his fading villa, sleeping with fans for cash. Then the drama increases as his estranged daughter returns with her Muslim boyfriend asking for money. And nice touch for xenophobia as well. And the clashes between them, uh, his overall confusion, turns him into an increasingly pathetic wretch. It's an absolutely wonderful lead performance that carries the film while the style itself brings it all home. Hold. Brutal and cutting from be- from beginning to end. Just uh, a fantastic uh, discovery for me.
1: So this is the film I enjoyed the most out of Chris's top five, Ooh. and I'm really glad that he brought it to my attention because I probably wouldn't have sought it out if he hadn't recommended it. So thank you for that, Chris. And I think you make a great comparison to Mickey Raw in the Wrestler here. I mean, it's such a superb central performance. It- times it it feels like we're almost watching a documentary about a real person not a film about an invented character I mean the way the main actor inhabits his role is worth watching the film for alone but then we get some real kind of twisted humor along with a real sense of sadness and how his glory days have, have long since faded and I've been to Rimini and the side of Rimini that is presented in the film is very different to what i saw and it it, it really works well the, the choice to set it in winter and just the kind of reflection of this faded wannabe musician and it's kind of depicted against the background of a, of a faded holiday town during winter where not many people are around and the performances where he sings in front of the crowds of his of his aging groupies are to me, I found them really amusing. They remind me of a, a certain type of British holiday that uh, any British listeners may be fond of, where you've got these kind of second rate performers entertaining a, a crowd that are not massively interested. Although in this case, I suppose they are his dedicated fans, but that's what it kind of felt like to me. Thanks again for the recommendation, Chris, and I hope... Of people will deep this one
2: out. While I don't absolutely love Rimini, it's probably my second favourite of Chris's films that he selected for his top five. It just gets worse the higher up I get. <laughs> I, I like your number two better than your number three, but, yeah, it does, it does sort of... <laughs> the podcast will end on a very sour note, but what can we do? Yeah, this is very really you. <laughs> Yeah. So, look... Like Tom and Chris have mentioned, the lead performance is absolutely amazing. Michael Thomas is sensational in this. And I think largely because it's a very body language, heavy performance. I don't know if it was mentioned too much by Tom and Chris. I don't recall them saying it. But the majority of the film is actually shot in long shot. There are some medium shots in there also, but most of the film takes place in long shot with very few close-ups. And therefore, a lot of what Michael Thomas does when he's acting, it's all about the body language because we hardly ever get to see the face, which I thought was an incredibly interesting way to shoot a movie, especially because, like Tom said, it sometimes feels like we are watching a documentary. That's how realistic the performance is. In addition to the tendency for long shots, I also liked the neon in the film, especially at night. As you guys have mentioned, the place is almost desolate. It's like a faded holiday town. And just seeing him wandering these streets at night in all the neon was just amazing. I guess for me, it was more of as a narrative that the film didn't quite do it for me. Over half an hour passes before the daughter arrives. And the first encounter was kind of interesting because he's flirting with her without realising that she's his daughter. So I thought that was a very interesting introduction for the characters. But then you're sort of expecting the film to be about them learning to reconnect and then it sort of isn't. And the daughter's just so standoffish. I mean, I guess you're coming from the point of view that, yeah, he's not been a particularly great parent, but I just found the daughter incredibly hard to sympathise with or like. And the way she's making him kneel before her, that part of, for me, didn't quite work. The other thing which didn't quite work for me, which might be my own fault because I'm an incredibly big fan of the producers, is the second half of the film, what Michael Thomas gets up just sort of reminded me of Max Bielerstock in The Producers with the way that he's trying to get funds because I don't think it spoils it too much that the daughter sort of asks for a bit of Payment from the father or for him to sort of make up for what he never provided with when he was younger. And because he doesn't have the money, he becomes a bit of a Max Bialystok. The only thing is that the movie isn't really played for laughs So that for me was a little bit strange. But look, overall, I didn't love the film. I didn't think it was a particularly great film. I didn't think it was a good film. I, I liked it overall, but mainly on account of the lead performance in there and the way the film was shot as a narrative yeah, unfortunately didn't quite work for me as much as I would have liked it to.
0: Yeah, that's perfectly all right, Sol. I mean, I will say that I do actually think there is a comedic element to it, even though a very, very bleak one, this kind of bleak uh, comedy or whatever you want to call it, Austrian doom, this kind of just stabs at you, like uh, Östlund if he decided to uh, become far more depressive but yeah no i don't think endgame is uh, meant to be played for for a laugh out loud experience like the producers Uh, i think it's more about just uh our lead becoming more and more pathetic and that worked for me but this actually brings us up to our golden plateau of the top three of
1: 2022 so tom which film got the bronze medal we're getting to the good stuff now chris And after Pearl and the Beasts, we continue to travel into the world of twisted cinema with my third favourite film of 2022, Resurrection. It's a dark psychological thriller that spills over into the realm of horror in its final third, as Rebecca Hall plays a career driven single mother who comes face to face with demons from her past in the form of her menacing ex-boyfriend, played by Tim Roth. Both actors inhabit their roles brilliantly, adding credibility to a story that blurs the lines between reality and imagination. Audience try to decipher if what is shown is genuinely happening or is in the mind of the troubled protagonist. Just like in Pearl, there is an excellent long take in Resurrection, as the camera lingers over Hall during an emotionally heightened sequence that leaves you utterly transfixed at her impressive performance. The film's unpredictable direction is a personal highlight for me, though I can imagine those unprepared for the gruesome sequences towards the end may find themselves reeling with its raw depiction of a bloody and violent event that is genuinely uncomfortable to watch. Now, I love films that are not afraid of an ambiguous approach when done well. The events depicted in Resurrection could be interpreted in a number of ways, even though to me it seems like there's only one explanation I'm happy with. It's still always interesting to hear other perspectives and ideas on a film. And when a film is a jumping point for discussion, then that would be a good thing. Director Andrew Simans doesn't spell everything out for the viewer, although there are many clues that allude to things throughout. And this trust that an audience can unpack what is subtly being indicated restores my faith somewhat in intelligent filmmaking. Not everything has to be explained for a film to be an excellent experience and to me resurrection is a prime example of a thought-provoking horror that will inevitably linger on your mind for days or even weeks after you first encounter it
0: i suppose i can start first as i believe i was the one that was the most negative on resurrection but what i will say is that rebecca hall was absolutely fantastic in this film Her opening monologue drew me in immediately. And she just keeps up that energy. So just really impressive that you managed to find two horror films for this top five, Tom, that have really great central performances. That's It it feels rare. And uh, Tim Roth also delivers a lot of unnerving tension. But even with all of that acting talent, I really felt that the script slash premise bordered on the ridiculous. I don't want to spoil where it goes, what Tim Roth claims, and what Rebecca Hall believes. But for me, the film should have been more of a dark comedy or a lead into Cronenberg territory to really sell that. It was played a little too great for me, and I didn't believe it, I didn't think the plot and what happened fit with the atmosphere and mood. But I I still overall enjoyed it. The acting performances carried it. The tension was strong. And the, the play with reality was fairly well done. It's just the overall concept. This was a little too out there to be taken seriously for me.
2: It's quite interesting to hear Chris say that he found what was happening in Resurrection to be a bit ridiculous. And that he didn't believe it because I actually found that I was able to believe it and I thought the irony in it was quite interesting. I mean, I don't know how much we can say about the film without spoiling it too much, but she sort of helps an intern out earlier on in the film to get away from something which she herself ends up falling into, which is interesting as an irony. It's just sort of... Having half the film dedicated to that didn't really quite do it for me. What I really liked the most about the film was what Tom talked about with the initial paranoia and the ambiguity and you're sort of uncertain whether the person who she's seeing is really this person from her past. I thought that was really great and I really wanted to have a film that was more about that. You know, I absolutely loved paranoia thrillers as anybody who's been listening to the podcast for a while would know and that for me was the part of the film which I enjoyed the most being able to be in a headspace not entirely certain whether we trust her perception and whether this is really this person from her past or not I also agree with what Thomas said about the long take the eight minute monologue was absolutely amazing and like both Chris and Thomas said Rebecca Hall's performance in the film is phenomenal Just overall, it didn't really quite do it for me. But again, I guess it's sort of based on what I was expecting and what I wanted to take out of it. And as somebody who finds it more interesting when films are more ambiguous and where the paranoia is really driven up, that was the part that I was digging, not what she falls into in the second half of the film to get as vague about it as possible for fear of spoilers. I like how
1: even though both of you weren't overly taken with the film, you still found a lot to enjoy in it. And I think that is a positive reception to the film. So I think it indicates if you are open to dark psychological thrillers that bred into horror, you are going to take a lot from this film. And for anyone who enjoyed Alex Garland's Men, which is a film I mentioned in my top 10, I think you will also enjoy resurrection because there's a lot of similar thematics there they make great companion pieces and i was taken aback by resurrection it's one that prompted a a lot of discussion between myself and my partner sarah after we watched it and there's not many films that you know have us chatting for 20 minutes half an hour after they've finished and that to me is always the sign of of a good film and what was your number three film of the
2: year then sol While I described Triangle of Sadness as a movie that I knew I was going to like, and that sort of certainty is always amazing, my number three film of the year was actually a movie that I thought I might dislike. And when the film opened on two individuals getting covered in elephant poo, my heart immediately sank. Why had I agreed to see this three hour film in the cinema? Could I really endure three hours of elephant poo gags? Of course, the film isn't all about that, and in fact, the opening of the movie is metaphorical, focusing on a man who rises from shoveling literal crap to momentary fame and fortune. The film that I'm talking about is, of course, Babylon. While very long, the film is a very intense ride with several standout sequences as we follow film personnel during the difficult transition from silent to sound. My second favorite part of the movie has the crew trying to film a brief sequence wide for sound with constant interruptions and retakes. It is a very stressful scene, so no doubt this was Tom's favorite part of the film. My own absolutely favorite part of the movie, though, is probably the part that involves Tobey Maguire and a near surreal trip through an underground lair that feels like the stuff that nightmares are made of. Whatever the case, the film culminates on one hell of a final note, including an absolutely breathtaking montage sequence that really captures the power and immortality of cinema. I had tears in my eyes at the end of the film, which I could have never expected from the ridiculous note on which the film began. So what did you guys make of Babylon? I
0: really like Babylon. There's just so many incredible pet pieces here. I mean, the opener, not the elephant poo shoveling, because that was a bit too ridiculous and <laughs> started me off with low expectations. But once you actually get to the party... The skill and the grandeur it brought Soy Cuba to mind, to be honest. It's just spectacularly done. You feel how huge it is. You feel the extravaganza of it all. And it manages to frame so many characters within it. It's breathtaking. And Cassell really showcases just what an excellent director he is. When he manages to carry out set pieces like this on so many occasions. The film was a little too bloated for me and I honestly thought that some of the side stories were a little flat. Brad Pitt was excellent in this film. But his storyline, while has a bit of tragedy, it has a bit of stories born kind of vibes to it a little bit, it didn't pack that drive. And I have to say that there's a mob story uh, that goes into, which I felt just got a little bit uh, over the top and silly. I mean, it plays with over the top throughout. And I think if you can embrace that over the top nature of it all, uh, the film will really pop for you. Though I thought it was a little bit of a mixed bag with highs and lows, a bit of a roller coaster, really. But just yeah, a really good film, brilliant direction, fantastic acting,
1: yeah, just a
0: really, really strong film.
1: I think I would agree more with Chris than Sol in his depiction of the film. I mean, any film about the movies usually sits well with me, and it certainly captures a outrageous side of Hollywood in a very entertaining manner though not all the segments are effective and it's funny that the scene Sol mentioned the stressful scene where the shot keeps getting interrupted that he thought it might be my favorite one i actually thought that was perhaps the weakest one and it was where my interest started waning much more enjoyed the ones with the excellent epic scale as, as chris said but agree that it was a little too bloated my favorite segment was when they go down into the basement of the of the mansion and there's all sort of horrific things going on in there the lighting and the color palette throughout that was great and i really enjoyed it when the can't remember if it's a crocodile or an alligator came on the scene and that reminds me that we didn't even mention the crocodile uh, or, or alligator sorry guys if there's any crocodiles or alligators listening then i'm confusing you both but uh, whichever one appeared in pearl as well well that was an excellent inclusion there i did enjoy babylon but i did feel it was a little too bloated and a little too long for its own good with some tighter editing it would have been very good film but as
2: it stands it's it's a good film one that i feel misses its marks and what i'm glad both of you enjoyed babylon even if you didn't totally love it because it did get some quite negative immediate reviews i mean obviously lots of positive ones but yeah a lot of complaints also afterwards so i think it's one of those films where it might take a while for the fan base to truly warm up but I do really think it's a movie for the ages with its uh, portrait of films and just tributes throughout to Singing in the Rain. I'm a massive fan of Singing in the Rain, so I was probably always destined to love the film. Uh, in terms of being bloated, I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, probably the part with the jazz musician, that storyline didn't quite grip me too much. The Brad Pitt stuff, which Chris mentioned, I actually really liked that part of it. And I thought his final scene was so amazingly dignified. You sort of like just got the door open. We don't venture inside the room. We can sort of fill in the blanks for ourselves. I think his character probably represents the one who's probably most shafted throughout the progressions of the film industry. But then again, the film's sort of a guess about how the film industry eats people up and swallows them out. And yeah, the film's a bit over-ambitious and a bit over-the-top, as I guess some Hollywood productions are. But I've only seen the film once and we'll eventually see it twice. And I guess that's when I'll probably make my final mind about all the side stories. It is incredibly long. There is a lot going on there, but I don't think I was ever once bored it And by the end, I was just so moved by it that I was delighted that I was able to talk about it as one of my top three films of the year. Speaking of top three films, it's probably your time to chime in. Chris, what was your number three of the year? My third favorite film of the year is
0: actually a documentary which I've been interested in it since I heard about it for the first time. i didn't been coming with that big expectations, and the film is question is See You Friday, Robinson, by Mitra Farhani, which showcases a rather unusual and extended conversation from two different countries between Ebrahim Kullestan and John luc Godard. It's just a beautiful document of a a most unusual attempt at at communication. And as it continues, it moves from frustration and word games, uh, if you will, to what can actually be understood as a genuine connection. The film starts with the idea that it's just bizarre that these two huge directors both internationally famous in the 60s, never met with Farhani setting them up as the modern-day equivalent of pen pals. These two men have never had a conversation, even on the phone. But through Farhani's setup, each Friday, one of them will write to the other, who will respond the following Friday. Golestan wants to discuss the great issues of art, the present, and history. While Godard may want to as well, but communicates in fragments videos, shorts, George, um, either with himself or just samples of pictures and art and specific references. To a point that leaves Golestan just completely bewildered, trying to decipher it all, unsure if there's any meaning in it, and just becoming increasingly frustrated. The energy matches a child trying to solve a riddle and giving, but it ends up giving us insights into how both men's minds work. However, it's with their health issues that the two start to become more relatable and human. Farani's uh, filmmaking I- itself is also incredibly dynamic and effective. She creates a great atmosphere in Golestan's home and builds visual tension with unusual composition. Our characters and their minds are put at the forefront and their body language and movements are captured beautifully, especially uh, Golestan's, whose home functions as our center. I think the film is even more exciting for fans of Godard as his scenes are filmed by his regular cinematographer Fabrice Arano and much of the content he sends himself is like mini-works, uh, allowing you to pry into his mind. Uh, the film is frequently funny, but overall it's just a beautiful look at artists in their twilight years, uh, made especially poignant by Godard's recent passing just after the film's release. It's a must-see for fans of both men, just a beautiful artwork showing the prowess of Mitra Ferrani, a director I just really need to explore
2: further. Chris's description of the film being a must-see for fans of either director is probably fairly accurate, but I'd say maybe die-hard fans rather than just any fans, because <laughs> I'd say I'm probably a moderate Godard fan, but I uh, definitely not as much as Chris is. So I guess for me this was a film that pretty much, I think I even put it in my letterboxd review, I said it pretty much does what it says on the tin. It's filming correspondence between the two men. Like Chris said, Goddard's correspondence is a little bit strange and requires some deciphering. And I think Golostan even claims that Goddard's just playing ping pong with him. And then Goddard starts sending him things just so long, Golostan says, I can't read it. makes me tired. And, you know, I find myself able to sympathize with that. <laughs> If you're interested in seeing a film about two men basically exchanging emails, you know, this film does that. I was sort of maybe done with the film before I was halfway done. I sort of, like, got where it was going. Yes, these are both old men. They're both giants in their own field. And, yes, they're corresponding with each other. There are some artistic shots in there. There's a great introduction shot of Godard. We first seen him as illuminated by a cigar. There's some atmospheric shots beginning with lightning strikes that illuminate the building. For me, it was one of those films where I'm sort of watching going, I think I would have enjoyed this as a short, so maybe something which is 30 or 35 minutes long, as a full length feature, which is basically just people reading out email correspondence. Unfortunately, it didn't really do it for me. So this is probably one of Chris's films in this top five that I'm least enthusiastic about but at least I enjoyed it more than his number one. <laughs> oh, there, yeah.
0: Yeah, I like your description of just two men exchanging emails, <laughs> to be clear. I mean, I think a, a lot of the film showcases both of the men's more fragile health. We have the, the scenes where Golestan reads the emails and tries to engage with him, but most of it is him thinking about it, him being in his home, the family ship around him, the shots from, from Godard's home, all of this little playfulness. I, I think there's a lot more humanity in it. I think the film is more visually interesting than just emails being read, though I can not see how someone not buying into the premise or coming in, I guess, as a super fan <laughs> of either of the two men might see it like that.
2: Well, yeah, look, it's probably cheap to write off as just a film about emails being read. There is more to it. But then the parts are more to it. A lot of that I just couldn't make sense of we have this very long shot of Godard just doing his laundry. And the last sport feels like minutes on end. Might only be 45 seconds, but it felt very long. And then we're seeing the other one rewatch that played out. And then we're having a cat. And I'm sort of like, surely these shots aren't random. What's yeah. really the purpose of it? So. There is more than just reading out emails, but the other parts are in there, other than the atmospheric part, of the lightning and whatever, just have me scratching my head a little bit too often for um, a film of its length.
0: Yeah, no, I get that. I mean, I, I think what makes the film a little bit more accessible is that uh, Goldstein, for most of it, he shares, like you said, he shares that frustration. And I think, honestly, Goldstein is really the protagonist in this film who's trying to engage with Godard. Godard is a bit of the antagonist, this more mischievous character. And I, I think as, as just watching goes on, trying to figure out is this guy just making fun of me? Is he trolling me? Is he serious about it? What does any of this mean? That part that he's
1: in that position as well. I think that does make it a little bit more accessible to general audiences. Confession time and apology time. Sorry, Chris, I haven't seen this. I'm not a huge Goddard fan from what I've seen, nor am I particularly interested in documentaries as you both know so i don't think i'd be positioned to get the best out of this film where i currently am but maybe when i'm more familiar with goddard's filmography i'll track this down but yeah i couldn't get to this one i didn't want to sit through it so apologies
0: no worries And coming from that point you might have liked it even less than so i do think that this is probably the most specialized film on my list but that actually brings us up to the silver medal of the year. Tom,
1: what is your second favourite film of 2022? So I think we're moving from perhaps one end of the scale to the other in the sense of a very highbrow pick from Chris to a very lowbrow pick from me now with lots of toilet humour here. Any listeners familiar with my unusual passion for toilet humor? be pleased to learn that the subgenre delivered one of its greatest in 2022 with the german horror comedy ach du Scheiß or holy shit and it takes the absurd concept of a man being trapped in a -a portaloo and flushes away all doubts you may have about the notion of spending 90 minutes in the toilet of a stranger as he battles amnesia brutal impalements and all manner of disgusting bodily fluids in his struggle to survive. The humour here comes thick and fast as our poor protagonist uses all of his wits to try and escape after learning that the portaloo is on a building site that is due to be demolished within the next hour and a half. What follows is a hilarious race against time, complete with generous helpings of gore and depravity along the way his situation becoming even more desperate as each failed attempt stretches his willpower to the limit, whilst also challenging the stomach of any viewer who stays for the duration. This is the perfect midnight movie that brings lots of laughs and utilises many daft but perfectly fitting plot devices to keep the momentum going throughout. The main actor, Thomas Niehaus, is excellent as the unfortunate architect trapped in a toilet with his charismatic performance selling the concept as much as the inventive writing and direction from Lucas Rinker. Best watch with Friends, as I did, and a beer or two, as I did. Holy shit, Is a riotous horror comedy that is impossible not to love. Maybe Chris and Sol will say otherwise, but who knows. But as long as you're a fan of good old-fashioned toilet humour and are open to comedies that try something different, I think you'll find a lot to love here.
0: So yeah, I guess it might not come as a surprise that literal toilet humour, if you will, (laughs) is not quite my cup of tea, especially when you add in uh, the gore humour, which is also not something I tend to enjoy that much. However, I was uh, quite impressed by its commitment this is uh, the, I guess, the portal to horror comedy we've all been waiting for. And honestly, I enjoy it more than the comparable buried, as it just has far more fun with its gimmick of, of the shooting everything from inside of the toilet. O- overall, the humor was just a bit too much, especially the last 10 minutes where it just links all in. To comedy, though I will say that Horst, which is this kind of Carnival-esque, Joker-esque villain, who most of the film we just hear through a speaker, he's why hum, really cheeky and brings a lot of energy to the film. But the campiness also has a charm to it. I mean, my biggest problem with it is probably just that all of the side characters acted like utter idiots. I mean, Comedy, tongue-in-cheek, that our covers that up to a point. But the way some of them don't realize who the killer is or just stand there completely dumbfounded, uh, that was just too much. But I- I'm really happy I saw it. It's a unique film, which I, I was very skeptical when they first picked this, Tom. So uh, definitely an interesting choice. And I do think that uh, while it's, niche as well probably has a much larger uh, fan base opportunities than uh, the films in my top three at least my number three and number one
2: it's interesting to hear tom say that this is a film that's best watched with a group of friends in a pack cinema like he did because i watched it alone on my ipad And I don't know if that's part of what affected my enjoyment of it because I really did like the premise of it and I like the setting and location. It was really interesting with it all being shot from inside the portal. I found it a little bit too repetitive for my taste. It's sort of like for every small win he gets, working out to use his drop phone, it's followed by a setback. And the chief villain for me was just a very simplistic it is definitely quite interesting in terms of single location cinema. But then of the two big toilet horror films of 2022, I actually much prefer Glorious with J.K. Simmons and all the purple neon and everything in that one. I mean, that one's also a film, Glorious, one that I felt overstated its welcome. But I was probably more on board with what was going on there than what we got inside holy shit and i think we are going to be able to say holy shit without uh chris beeping me out but if you hear all these beeps there um
0: (laughs) no we mostly just have our no swearing policy for uh for spotify which has this checker where we need to check that it's clean or not but uh, this is a title so i think it's allowed
2: well i don't know well there's a german title but i i can't Pronounce it properly. I'm not even gonna try. I mean, it is shice, but I don't know how to pronounce the words before that. So, uh, we'll call it Holy Shice for now. So, yeah, uh, my short take. Yeah, not a bad film. Interesting premise. Overstates welcome a bit, and I'll definitely prefer Glorious. If you're somebody who didn't get a whole lot out of Holy Shice, I'd still recommend uh, checking out Glorious because toilet horror is an up and coming genre, and I can't wait to see what else
1: comes out Off the toilet. Nice shout out for Glorious there, Soul. I also really enjoyed it. I don't know, there's something about holy shit that just worked for me. I think it was the end of a day at the horror festival, last film, you're kind of struggling to stay awake at the end of the night, and then something comes on, just grabs you immediately, and is so fun, and... I can't recommend it enough. If you guys didn't live in other parts of the world, there's no doubt that I would have invited you around to mine to have a screening of Holy Shit. and I imagine that would have been much more fun if we could all watch it together. In years to come, we'll, we'll fly you over to the UK and we'll sit down and have a, a special Talking Images screening. That would be great. We'll make it happen.
0: <laughs> that would be amazing. You know, maybe with a different film. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, And moving on to you, Sol, Uh, which film are you handing out the silver medal to?
2: My number two of the year is a film that I was extremely sceptical about seeing, even more sceptical than Babylon. At least with Babylon, there was a decent director behind it. The film had some good word of mouth, and my best friend couldn't stop raving about it. With my number two, on the other hand, it was a sequel to a film series that I thought was perfect as is, It came from the directors of one of the most overrated horror comedies in recent years and I'd already heard at least one damning report going in. It was therefore to my amazement that I absolutely loved the film to the point that I actually saw it twice during 2022. The film is of course Scream 5 or Scream to use the title that appears on screen. Not quite a remake movie intelligently riffs on the recent franchise trend to create requels in order to appease fans of the original without disenfranchising newcomers while the film amusingly follows the discussed rules of requels itself this is something that all three craven sequels did so well acknowledging mocking but then ultimately adhering to the rules of sequels with scream 2 Trilogies with Scream 3 and remakes in Scream 4. And it was really great to see the Requill, which is definitely on the rise, getting its due Scream treatment here. The film also eerily reuses some of the sets of the original Scream film, while David Arquette gives a performance for the ages, truly really completing his initially goofy character's arc. As it says in the film credits, For Wes, indeed, this is an incredibly respectful follow-up to the initial four films, as well as a movie prepared to do its own things at times. Most notably, the first, second, and fourth films all involve the killers trying to throw the sense off themselves and blame others, whereas in Scream 5, amusingly, the opposite happens. And like the other films, it was really fun to re-watch it and try and work out who committed which murder. And I was gonna put it out that I am planning to rewatch Scream 5 again in October this year when I'll also be rewatching Scream 6, which spoiler alert will almost definitely be in my top films of 2023.
0: I have to admit that I still haven't seen Scream 5 nor Scream 4. Maybe if you ever make us do a Scream podcast, I'll uh, sit down and watch them all, because I liked the first Scream, the second Scream was okay, I didn't care for a third one, and it's just not the franchise that I find that interesting, though your constant passion for these films uh, do make me intrigued to see what I might have missed.
2: That's good to hear, Chris, because I do think with your love for meta-cinema and films that play around with what's real and what's not real... I do think the Scream sequels are films that maybe you'd appreciate more now than when they first came out. And Scream 4, you don't know what you're missing out on. For me, it's one of the very top films of the decade. Now, I admire Souls' enthusiasm for the Scream
1: franchise, but the Scream films have kind of all blurred into one for me. I think I lost interest after Scream 3. And The Later Scream is a relatively effective thriller in part, but not particularly memorable. I mean, perhaps those with an affinity for the series would beg to differ, but I think your enjoyment of the film will vary depending on how invested in the characters you are. And I think many references could well go over the heads of casual, viewers. I just didn't think that it was anything special. But again, I think part of that could be because I
2: don't have as much investment in the franchise as Sol does. That's a perfectly understandable response, Tom. I guess I'm in a different position to you. I've seen the original four films, I guess, maybe eight times now. And yet all four of the original films are very distinct entities for me and I guess if you've only seen each of them once or twice, maybe they blur into a but, yeah, for me, they're very distinct, and coming into it as a fan of the quadrilogy, yeah, Scream 5 really passed the test for me, unexpectedly so, given that I wasn't a big fan of Ready or Not, the film that the directors did before that. In terms of investment of characters, what's really interesting for me is Scream 5 doesn't give much screen time to the legacy characters as they're called it's really about the new characters and when i first saw the film in the theaters that was sort of my big disappointment with screen 5 that we're not really getting a lot of the original characters we're getting so much of the new characters but by the time i went to rewatch it i sort of already had myself prepared for that and i got to really like the new characters and getting into Scream 6 i like the new characters even more so It's getting to the point where I'm watching all the Scream films once every one or two years, and I think part five and six will end up going along with that. But I do agree that it's going to be a hard sell for people who aren't fans of the original. I know that it's trying to follow the requel formula, even giving itself the title Scream rather than Scream 5, like so many requels have done, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and so on, trying to give itself its own original title. It is probably a tough sell, but for a fan of the quadrilogy, for me, it was pretty much a dream come true to have such a respectful follow up. And what about you, Chris? What was your number two of the year? This is why it's uh, too bad
0: uh, Matthew is not here, because uh, I believe this would have been on his top five or top six. I would have gotten some support. Now I think I'm alone on this, but (laughs) I will give my silver medal to Albert Sedas, Pacifiction which is a neon-clad, moody, anti-thriller, trading more on suspicion and uncertainty rather than any kind of a steadfast plot, with a length-fitting, the decaying sense of grandeur it depicts. Benoit Magimel strikes an enigmatic and simultaneously off-putting and intriguing figure as the high commissioner of an island in French Polynesia. He is the friend of all, high and low, spending his time whiting natives, striking deals and looking after uncertain interests of France. All while starting to suspect he might become sidelined by his own government, the navy, or perhaps foreign forces. His life is bloated, outmoded and while his suits are not exactly white. They're quite pale. He is clearly very much the embodiment of colonialism. But in the environment of today, which is interesting because just with a few tweaks in technology and music, this film could easily be set in the 1800s or 20s, 40s, 60s, etc. It's a timeless fable. Perhaps of madness, or rather, megalomania. But this is a megalomania shared by more than our protagonist. The dirty, libertine world conjured up by Sarah's atmospheric shots and slow pace, coupled with characters with uncertain loyalties, motives, and goals, and a mystery that may lead to everyone's doom fuels an enigmatic and questioning suspense that lasts throughout its runtime. That said, those wishing for a more straightforward plot may indeed be disappointed, if not a little bit bored, and uh, I can certainly see it being a rather divisive film all the same it did actually make a lot of top lists in various arthouse publications etc so at least the arthouse crowd is white behind me on this one i even see from the chat
1: that tom liked it so i'm really happy to hear that tom i did like pacifiction, though i do have qualms with it some things that kind of left me disappointed and I think your description of it as an anti-thriller indicates where my thoughts lie with it because there was a great build-up of tension and mood throughout. The atmosphere was on point, there was a strong score, breathtaking cinematography, and there was lots of really fascinating conversations. Some of them turned a little heated, but I was really engaged and invested in Fiction for perhaps maybe the first hour and a half, two hours. And then this could possibly be a minor spoiler, so I'm just going to put it out there in case someone wants to watch it and go in blind. But to me, it felt that it leads to a relatively lacklustre climate that left it a bit of a sour taste behind. All this excellent tension and atmosphere that is created really led me to believe that something, I don't know, kind of explosive or something intense was going to happen in in the climax. But I felt like it just kind of, Simmered away and not much really happened. And I get that that is the overall point of the film and why it went in that direction. It just left me a little unsatisfied. But I mean, there's an excellent central performance. I did enjoy it, but my enjoyment was kind of muted somewhat because of where the film went. Perhaps if I revisited it and my expectations are tempered, there's a chance I may well enjoy it more. But it was an interesting ride and one that I'm definitely glad that I watched.
0: Really happy to hear that, Tom. And I will actually agree that anti-climax at the end and the whole prolonged section there is actually what moved it away from being my number one of the year. So I do agree it was a slight decline towards the end, though. The shots during the close to final dance sequence did actually (laughs) remind me a little bit of You and I still really enjoyed it. But I can definitely see where you're coming from.
2: Pacifiction is my favourite of Chris's top three films. I love that. Yeah. And overall, it's probably tied with ramini as my second favourite of his overall. The big points for me that definitely worked were the lead performance, as both of you have mentioned. The lead actor is sensational in it. As Chris mentioned, his glowing white suits just look amazing, and they do speak of colonialism there, and especially the way he's in his shiny white suits so and dark glasses that he barely ever takes off, and against the natural beauty of French Polynesia, he got the questioning of if you've got so much natural beauty there, why build a casino in there? So I thought all of that was quite interesting. I guess for me as a narrative, the thing was very lethargically paced. I don't know if it was meant to be a character study or not, But for me, I guess, sort of like uh, what Tom mentioned, when it got towards the uh, final half hour or so, I was starting to drop off from it a little bit. But I really liked the lead performance. The contrasts in there were great. The whole idea of you put the casino in here and there's so much beauty in there. Why would you do that? It was all quite interesting, but probably not enough for me in a film, which was around three hours long. And bit of an irony of me saying that when Babylon's three hours long, and absolutely loved every minute of that. But for whatever reason, Pacific Shore didn't quite do it for me. I did think it was a good film, though, which is a bit more than what I can say about uh, Chris's number one, but we'll get to that a little bit later. And uh, with that surprising
0: positivity from both of you, it's, it's good when I have my expectations low. Um, let's just go to the very top of the podium. Our gold medals for 2022. And we can start with you, Tom.
1: What was your favourite film, 2022? It's kind of a bit different to the films that I've discussed so far because looking over my notes, most of them are horror, dark films, pretty messed up. But here we've got a wonderful film from none other than Steven Spielberg, The Fablemans. I think Spielberg has done it again with his touching and poignant drama that is wonderfully wrapped up in nostalgia. It's the heart-wrenching story of a loving mother and father who drift apart that is bolstered by enchanting sequences of their son and his emerging talent and ambition as a filmmaker, with many of the key moments lifted straight from Spielberg's past. Paul Dano and Michelle Williams are excellent here as Mr. and Mrs. Fableman, accompanied by a surprisingly effective performance from Seth Rogen and talented young actors who play the Fableman's children across multiple years. Once again, Spielberg's sentimental approach takes main stage here, though for me it managed to hit all the right notes, with a multitude of moving scenes that could well reduce sensitive viewers to tears. There was one key scene where the young Sammy Fableman shows a home video to his mother that left me fighting back the tears. Such is the power of Spielberg's fine-tuned storytelling. Even when he resorts to cliched stories involving young loves and bullies at high school, he manages to delight, balancing his playful side with the serious in a way that often leaves you blindsided. This is, at its heart, a coming-of-age tale, but it has a universality in its depiction of family life as a young child. It refuses to shy away from the traumatic events that can shape a child's future life, whilst also revelling in the joyous memories that will inevitably last a lifetime. Now, the icing on the cake for me here is a wonderful finale that will undoubtedly leave cinephiles with a huge smile on the face. I don't think you have to love films as much as I do to get the most out of the Fablemans, but those familiar with Spielberg's back catalogue and the American classics that it lovingly references are likely to get a huge kick out of some of the surprises along the way in this brilliant film.
2: The Fablements was a film that I was a little bit cautious about. I think I might have mentioned it in the Hype podcast as one of those films that was getting talked up towards the end of 2022 where I was saying you know I don't really mind whether I see it in the cinema or whether I see it at home afterwards Um, I ended up seeing it in the cinema and it was a jam-packed cinema screening. They actually managed to oversell the tickets, which was uh, quite interesting. They uh, paused the film (laughs) during the trailers. We had to inspect our tickets to try and work out what was going on and why there weren't enough seats in there. And One of the tickets had the wrong date on it, but I'm going off on a tangent here. Interesting seeing it in a group setting, as obviously you get the reactions of the people around you, everything going on. Probably the key thing for me, while I'd say would be a top twenty film of the year for me, rather than a top five of the year film for me, is the film has got three sections in there, and I found each section a little bit less magical than the first. Where I mean, the first section of the film is absolutely magical, you have him as a preteen kid going to see The Greatest Show on Earth for the first time and absolutely falling in love with it. And really, that he's wanting to, to recreate this special effects driven scene with the train crash and everything. That part of the film, for me, was absolutely magical. The second part of it, where you see him as a teenager creating his own films, was slightly less magical. But I really also like the insight that we got into the amateur filmmaking process, the way he's directing all the actors, and sort of who has got this actor there who's so invested in the role that he's going off and doing all this other stuff once the tape's actually finished. I thought that part of it was definitely very interesting. And it was just a third act for me that f- was a little bit on the weak side. You have a little bit, he's a little bit older, he's still in high school, and he's a culture school bullies at a new school. And that, for me, felt quite formulaic. As Tom did mention, the film does kept off with an amazing finale with a great cameo in there, which I don't want to spoil for anyone because for whatever reason, I managed to go into the film unaware of the cameo. So that that was just brilliant. Absolutely loved the cameo, loved the final shot of the film. Like Tom said, Paul Dano, Dano, I don't need to pronounce his name, Absolutely fantastic. Definitely the biggest Oscar snub of the year. He then got a nomination for the film. I thought he was incredible in it. And, yeah, I would highly recommend the film overall. It's definitely one of Spielberg's best films for my money. It's just probably not quite as magical at the start of the film as it was for me by the end of the film.
0: That was actually my uh, exact experience too, that the film did feel less magical as it progressed, except for that ending, which is amazing. I mean, that is the best scene in the entire film. And yes, that <laughs> that cameo, absolutely wonderful. I also agree that uh, Paul Dano was fantastic in it. I actually thought he was better than Hirsch, who got their Academy Award nominations. I do think that Spielberg's uh, passion for cinema comes true. But like Saul also says, that section where you know he's countering school bullies, it's not that interesting. It is formulaic. And the way it's resolved as well, it doesn't feel special to me. I mean, it's a cool idea to kind of counter bullies with cinema, but it just felt a little bit
1: off. Overall, I thought it was a good film but
0: not one I liked as much
1: as I'd hoped. I'm glad that you both enjoyed the ending as much as me. I I thought it was incredible and very well done. And if there's any listeners who grew up watching Spielberg films as much as I did, I I mean, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade was a a very important film in igniting my passion for cinema, then I'm sure you're going to have a lot of fun with this. It is magical, as Sol and Chris have said, And it's also very moving. So hope that you enjoy this.
0: What about you, Saul? Which film are you giving the gold
2: medal to as best film of 2022? I will try to be as brief about my number one of the year because it's a film that really needs no introduction and which we have actually already done a complete podcast on. What I will say, though, is that at this point last year, my opinion of the film was... Amazing and an all-time favourite, but incredibly overrated. My opinion has since changed. After three viewings, I think I can safely say that I love the film even more. I think the sound and sight voters who placed it on their all-time top ten were onto something. And as it stands, I think the film is actually slightly underrated. The movie that I'm, of course, talking about is Everything, Everywhere, All at Once the greatest film ever made about how confusing doing your taxes can be, while also an amazing look at family. And like I said, I'll make it brief because we've already discussed this one in the past. Maybe they'll go to Tom first because he actually wasn't with us on the podcast when we're all raving about how great the film was and how overrated it might be if it was great. Yeah, I missed out on
1: that podcast episode and... I confess that I haven't actually listened to it yet, so I need to remedy that to find out a bit more about what everyone thought about it. And for me, this is a film where the hype train kind of did it an injustice. I mean, sure, it's a fun and entertaining film. Um, Don't get me wrong, I did enjoy it, but I honestly struggle to understand the huge praise behind it. it. To me, it feels like a kind of comedy rehash of a... Popular sci-fi action film from nearly twenty-five years ago, and it do, okay. does have a few new ideas, but it, its central themes have just been repackaged. I am not sure whether I'll revisit it anytime soon, but I can't imagine all the humour stands up on repeat viewings. I am sure Saul will disagree, but maybe in ten years or so, I'll revisit it and reappraise it. But it didn't quite live up to the hype
0: exactly what Saul said in the podcast when he was more lukewarm on it and then with the repeat viewings it just kept climbing up to the point that it's now his favorite so <laughs> maybe you will change your mind as well like you Tom I'm not sure if the humor itself will stand up to me in a rematch but it could I thought it was a great film it's really creative, the comedy is a little bit juvenile at parched especially with some of the <laughs> dildo jokes but It was a really crazy ride, a very inventive film, and it deserves a lot of the accolades it got.
2: Yeah, look, I I do sympathise with what Chris says about the humour being juvenile, and I do wish that someone was a little bit less juvenile, you know, the dildo nunchucks and sticking things up people's rear ends. But overall, the humour did work for me. I've seen the film three times. I almost watched it a fourth time before the podcast, But I thought, well, no, it's actually fresh enough in my memory that I don't need to for any points that come up. But I do intend to actually watch it another time this year. The film's actually already in my top 50 of all time. So it's just a question of whether it's going to continue to go up from there. Mm -hmm. And I did actually make the exact same comparison that Tom did in the podcast about saying it's basically The Matrix as a comedy remake. But there's so, so much more to it, and all the emotions there it's so real. The last time I was watching it, I had tears running down my face, and even I hate watching trailers, but sometimes you have to. I've been going to the cinema lately. There's been trailers for Joyride, the latest comedy with Stephanie and Sue in there, Every time a scene with her pops up or whatever, I get tears in my eyes because it just reminds me of those more emotional scenes from Everything Everywhere all at once. And even I watched um, The Goonies for the first time uh, just a couple of months ago, and just seeing the dad from Everything Everywhere all at once in there as a child, then just bringing back memories. Yeah, I, just, I, I really want to go and watch it a fourth time, but I want to give myself a little bit of distance first. So. I don't know, maybe it is a bit of an overrated film, but yeah, for me, it's actually already fallen out of the top 70 in the letterbox. I think it's like number 74 or something. By the time we release this episode, it'll probably be out of the top 100. So I guess I go to the point of view where it's interesting. I was thinking it was overrated. I'm now wondering, even seven Oscars later, whether it is slightly underrated. But enough rambling on about the film, because I have got a whole podcast on that. Uh, what about you, Chris? What is your divisive number one <laughs> of the year?
0: A divisive, or shall we say, one against all. Again, it would have been nice to have Mathieu here, who's slightly more aligned with my uh, house preferences. He is sorely missed. But uh, yeah, my number one of the year is Unru slash Unrest by Thirur Shabrin. And it's probably not the film anyone expected to see about anarchism in 2022. But anarchism is order, symbolized by the famous AO uh, logo, if you will, has uh, long been one of the slogans of anarchism. And the film really does a lot to essentially embody uh, this spirit. Uh, the film could have been a biography of one of the key anarchist theorists, Piotr Kropotkin, as we follow him, back when he was a cartographer, into a Swiss watchmaking village, which is where, we are informed by the opening text, his anarchist commitment took shape. But the film goes in a very different direction, which may prove distancing to some viewers, I guess, including uh, my two co-hosts, as he chooses to not focus on... Characters, but instead give a sense of time and place. The title Unrest, or Unru, actually refers to not just political unrest, but the balance wheel that keeps clocks ticking, with the film itself fittingly dedicating a decent portion of its runtime to the work of creating this wheel, often with stopwatches nearby to just see how many seconds sad sad process takes, and if they match the factory's goal of increased production. Interestingly, while the town's a hotbed of anarchist activity, everything up to and including the owner of the factory and the core power brokers uh, appear to be harmonious. There is simply no unrest, if you will, which creates a striking internal contradiction that kept staying on my mind. What is also rather unique with the film is how it treats people in relationship to their surroundings, often placing the characters you might expect to be our leads in the corners of the frame, uh, presenting a kind of visual equality, promoting and exploring the time, place, uh, community as more central to its storytelling. In close-ups, characters speak almost as as he's speaking directly to us viewers, while the broader compositions feel more lyrical, are uh, almost like serene paintings. To the listeners who might think that my description of Enru presents something that's just poetical, philosophical, and a bit dull. What Strogen actually manages to do with beyond this romantic beauty is to just be incredibly funny. At, at least to me, uh, everyone is just so Polite. No one wants to break the serenity. Even the policemen, as they stop people from voting in the election, smile and wish the people they brush away a good day. And the people they <laughs> they stop from voting wish them a good day back. Everything is so formal. Everyone is obsessed with time and decorum to the point that it surpasses the absurd. The power of the factory owner is supreme and merciless, but it is done with a smile, and everyone is expected to act accordingly. I would also be tempted to say that Schoblin's purpose in all of this harmony is to actually showcase unrest in a way that it has not been before, and putting it in a context that audiences can understand. While harmonious, we still see power and power imbalances based on ownership as well as the plight of the workers. And the fact that there is no unrest might make us all think, why is that the case, especially given its title? In my mind, this film establishes Shoblin as an author to watch. And I did actually seek out his debut feature, Those Who Are Fine, from 2017, which is done in a similar, though rougher, style, so I just cannot wait to see how he develops this style in the future he, he will definitely be on my short list of directors uh, to keep an eye on and enough of my praises let's uh,
1: end this podcast on a more negative note I did find quite a few things to praise in Unrest I, I thought it was a beautiful historic film and it really transports you back to the era it and showcases the intricacies of working in a watchmaking factory. And whilst this is mostly fascinating, the main storyline lacks any real urgency or excitement. Perhaps this is due to, as you mentioned, there's not really any characters that you can latch onto. I suppose the strength, the unique setting, wasn't enough to, to carry the film alone for me. It was a nice effort, and it's... Certainly worthwhile seeking out, though it also feels like a bit of a
2: missed opportunity for me. I think Tom has summed up the film nicely there, although he seems to have liked it a bit more than me. I do agree with him that the film felt like it lacked urgency and it lacked excitement. And for me, it was one of those films where the characters spend half the time standing around and chatting now chris did mention how the characters are sort of positioned in the corner of the frame and i agree with that the framing is generally quite interesting because you have all these long shots that position the characters in the bottom third of the frame so sort of like the top third two thirds of it is background but this wasn't really a consistent approach so you've got all of these more conventional cutaways and medium shots and close-ups in between all this strange framing So for me, I probably would have liked the film more if it was actually more committed to the idea, we're going to create this film, we're going to use the bottom third and keep in mind all the thirds, use the entire bottom third. That for me would have been more interesting, sort of like Remini, because that was a film that was mostly in long shot or medium shot. So if it was more committed to that, I think it would have been able to get on board with what it was doing. But for me, those strange and unusual shots were only happening every so often throughout. And a lot of it for me was just characters standing around talking. And like Chris mentioned, because there isn't much character development in there, there's only so much I could get out of it. It is quite interesting that Chris mentioned the film as being quite funny because I can just imagine the reaction if he recommended this to somebody as a film that's going to make you burst out laughing. (laughs) I mean, obviously, he didn't intend it that way. And I can sort of see what he's getting with some of the over-politeness. But for me, I was pretty much done emoji throughout. It really didn't connect with me at all. It's actually a film which I think the word that came to mind when I first watched it was difficult. I've described it as quite a difficult movie. I mean, obviously, if you're part of the art house crowd, you're looking for films that are not about entertainment and not about necessarily telling a story. There's quite a bit going on there. But I think for the average film punter, because this was put out as a potential film for our a film festival on the forum, I think would be an incredibly uh, difficult film to get through. So uh, I don't know if that's quite negativity, but of all the films that Chris has talked about on the podcast, other than maybe Human Position, but those in his runner-up list, this would definitely be my least favorite of his recommendations, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, and interestingly, Human Position has some similar uh, shot compositions as well. Dolls' Warning rings uh, very true. I think that this is a film that is mainly going to appeal to art house audiences. <laughs> Within its niche, it definitely has potential, but anyone who tends to prefer more narrative cinema, character-driven cinema, etc., probably will have a similar reaction or even <laughs> a worse reaction. So with that, we have actually come to uh, the end uh, of our podcast. And to And on a note of slightly more positivity and to honor our dear co-host Mathieu, who sadly cannot be here with us today. Uh, I did think we could just present his top 10 of the year really quickly, so he has his recommendations as well. He has some huge films on his top 10 that we sadly did not get around to discussing. I mean, his number one was Jordan Peele's Nope, and then he continued with The Banshees of Aina I mean, those two films were huge in 2022 and sadly because of his absence we could not sink our teeth into them then he has french drama passengers of the night which reminded me a little bit of romere then he has saint omer which i loved as well followed by everything ever all at once the beasts which of course was on tom's list leila's brother I followed that on seventh then fire of love father and soldier uh, which is a french drama about a father who joins his 17 year old son in the, in the first world war. And final film on his top 10 was my number two, pacifiction. So that's where I could have got my support (laughs) for that film, though at least that ended up being a bit more positive than I expected. And with all of these recommendations, I hope that our listeners have found some choices that they might want to seek out right now, heard us highlight some of their own favorites. And maybe we brought up some films you absolutely hated or missed some films you absolutely loved. So for any criticism of our arguments and to just share your own personal favorites, you can go to the thread dedicated to this episode on icmforum.com share your thoughts share your lists share your recommendations and we we'll love to meet you there and discuss further with you and just keep this episode going because like uh, it seems like we all agree, 2022 was just such a great year for cinema and I'm sure there's much more to be explored and discovered I mean one of my most anticipated films *The uh, Scarlet by Pietro Marcello, is still not available to me so that's what was I just Keep waiting and waiting for. So join us on icmforum.com, share your lists, and besides that, thank you so much for listening. Join us again soon. You have been listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of icmforum.com.